So uh, our, our text this morning comes from Psalm 84. Verses 10 through 12. This is a, the whole psalm is just wonderful. It's a, it's a praise to God about just worshiping Him in the temple. And then uh, it says in verse 10, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Father, I ask this morning that your book would live and that the air conditioner would stay off. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. <clears throat> you know, the devil is alive and well, and I'm absolutely convinced that he can inhabit our technology and has done so. Um, I love giving gifts, and uh, I love especially giving gifts to my wife, but I have to make a, a confession. I am also not that good at it. Um, at least I'm not as good at it as she is. She is like devious and she's a planner and she, she'll think of something I said six months ago and then hide it from me and bring it out at Christmas. She's just really good and I'm just kind of like, thank you, you're amazing. And then when I give a gift to her, I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm so stupid, you know. But every once in a while, I get it right. I hit a home run. Um, Laura and I have both been a fan of Sir Patrick Stewart. He's the actor who plays Captain Jean-Luc Picard uh, on Star Trek, and we've been a fan since the early 1990s. We watched so much Star Trek around our house that our Cocker Spaniel Shelby would train herself to get up off the couch and run to the kitchen whenever the theme song came on because we always got snacks during the commercials and they always played that song when they would dismiss to a commercial. So the minute she heard, she was up and she was going for the refrigerator knowing that good things were coming, right? Uh, my wife is, she's a disciplined person and she started collecting the Star Trek ornaments that Hallmark put out in the 1990s and she would never let us open them or put them on the tree. So they're in our basement ensconced in, in pristine wrappers waiting for somebody to die and them to become worth millions of dollars. Well, in June, Sir Patrick Stewart announced that his autobiography was to be released in the fall and that he was doing a very limited book tour. And one of the locations was in Cincinnati and there were only like 350 tickets available, and it sold out in like half an hour, but I got two tickets for us. And the, 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 so what I ended up doing was buying two books, and the books were your tickets. And so we, we went down there and we picked them up, and, and it was last Friday, and we got front row seats, and that's a picture that I took of Brad Schumer. No. <laughs> Captain Picard's evil twin, Brad Schumer. No, that's, that's Sir Patrick Stewart, and we were, I don't know, 20 feet away from him. And um, 
And on the way back, when we were driving back, Laura asked me what my favorite part of the whole thing was. And I said, seeing you so happy. Because I knew that I had hit the bullseye that time. Well, on Thursday, I hit it again. Because Patrick Stewart had autographed a small number of books and mixed them in with the regular shipments to Books A Million. And uh, Laura found out about this on the internet. And she said, do we have a Books A Million here? I said, yeah, it's up in Niles. And, and she said, I want to go. I want to go see if the, one of those books is in their supply, and those autographed books. And, uh, and then she said, she said I'm going to go over lunch. And then she's like, darn it, I've got a phone call. I said, I'll go for you. So I went up there, and, and there's two copies of the biography in the whole store, and both of them are hand-autographed by Patrick Stewart. So I brought those home and put them behind my back. And I said, guess what? She was so excited. So now we've got four copies of this book. <laughs> and if anyone wants to buy one cheap, you know who to talk to. Not the autographed ones, but the unautographed ones. Uh, I, I've already checked. The, the autographed ones are going for twice the sticker price on eBay already. So why do we enjoy giving gifts so much? Well, that's easy to figure out if you know your Bibles. You and I are made in the image and the likeness of God, and our love of gift giving is derived from the image of God in us. This is actually an incredibly important point in theology. One of the primary attributes of God is that he is a gift giver. I mean, we think about the, we talk in theology about the attributes of God. We talk about theology proper, which is the study of God, and we say God is holy, and we unpack that. We say he's righteous, and we unpack that. He's omnipotent, he's omniscient, he's omnipresent, but he's also good. And his goodness is not simply a fact about his nature, it's also a description of his activity. The way his goodness manifests itself outwardly towards his creation is in the giving of gifts. And if you think about it, everything that exists besides God himself is a gift. In eternity past, before there was a world, before there were angels, before there was any created thing, the triune God existed in a sweet harmony of three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit dwelled together in a sweet that I have ever read before comes from John Ortberg, and it, this comes from a pastor's conference that he spoke at in 2012 or 2013, and he said this, Consider the Holy Spirit in the Trinity for a moment. Dale Bruner wrote a wonderful book called The Holy Spirit, the Shy Member of the Trinity. Of the Spirit, he said, one of the most surprising discoveries in my own study of the doctrine and experience of the Spirit in the New Testament is what I can only call the shyness of the Holy Spirit. What I mean here is not the shyness of timidity. Paul in 1 Timothy 1.7 calls him the Spirit of power. It's not the spirit of timidity, but the spirit of difference. A spirit of concentrated attention on another. It is not the shyness with which we often experience of self-centeredness, but the shyness of others' 
self-centeredness. In a word, the shyness of love. The shyness of love. The number of texts in the New Testament that speak about the dimension of the Holy, about this dimension of the Holy Spirit is significant. Jesus said, but the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom my Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything that I have said to you. That's John 14, 26. In other words, the Spirit will remind people about Jesus. Jesus also said, but when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own, but he will only speak what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. That's John 16. In other words, the Holy Spirit does not clamor to have attention focused on himself. His constant ministry is to get people to focus on Jesus. Brunner said the ministry of the Holy Spirit can kind of be pictured like an illustration. The Holy Spirit is saying, listen to him, look to him, pay attention to him, love him, follow him. Brunner says that the Holy Spirit constantly points to and gives glory to Jesus. But he says it's often been said that the Holy Spirit is the Cinderella of the Trinity, the great neglected person of the Godhead. But the Holy Spirit's desire to, and work is that we would be overcome again, thrilled again, excited and gripped again by the wonder and the majesty and the relevance of Jesus. The Holy Spirit does not mind being the Cinderella outside of the ballroom if the prince is honored inside of his kingdom. And when we look at, at Jesus, we see that Jesus didn't walk around saying, I'm the greatest. He said things like, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve. He submitted to the Holy Spirit. All of the synoptic gospels talk about Jesus being led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Mark, who was probably the first among the synoptic writers, said that the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness like you would drive a child. Matthew and Luke most likely did, that, did not include that because they wanted to keep Jesus' independence before us. Jesus submits only to the Father, and he says, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus has this same shyness. And then there's the Father. Twice in the Synoptic Gospels, we hear the voice of the Father. Once at Jesus' baptism, once at his transfiguration. Both times the Father said, in effect, this is my priceless Son. I am so pleased with him. Listen to him. Pay attention to him. Love him. Follow him. It's worth noticing that the voice from heaven does not say, listen to me too after listening to my son. Don't forget, I'm here too. I'm the father. Remember me. Don't get too taken up with my son. God the father is shy too. The whole blessed trinity is shy. Each member of the trinity points faithfully and selflessly to the others in a gracious, eternal circle of love. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were deliriously and joyously happy all by themselves before they created anything else. And they were so full of love and so full of joy that they said, we, we just can't keep this to ourselves. Let's create beings to share our goodness with. And so they did. God created myriads of angels, first of all. And angels come in so many different types. They were created out of the overflowing goodness of love. Their very existence itself is a gift. And they are given interesting and fruitful things to do. 
God delegates a portion of his authority to them and says, here, I want you to manage something for me. And he creates the universe. The stars, the planets, and the comets, and the asteroids, quasars, and pulsars, and black holes, all flung into existence. And then he focuses on one planet in particular, ours. And he forms it. And he gives it a sun and a moon. Out of the vast waters that cover its surface, he causes dry land to come up and form. He brings forth green plants of a myriad of different kinds. He fills every part of its environment with beautiful and abundant life. The oceans teem with beautiful fish of every conceivable color and shape. Birds of the air fill the skies. Beasts of the field fill the mountains and the valleys and the prairies. Insects creep about on the ground, each fulfilling their God-given function. And then he creates us, the crown jewel of creation. And he sets us over it. And it's all a gift. It's all an overflow of the triune God's joy and love. C.S. Lewis gets this more than any other modern writer, and he gets it in such an imaginative way that it is immediately charming. In his book, uh, the, the Magician's Nephew, which is the sort of the backstory. It's the last one he wrote, but it's really kind of the first one in the series. It's the story of the founding of Narnia and the experiences of Diggory Kirk, who is in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the old professor who owns the house with the queer wardrobe in it, as a boy, and his neighbor, Polly. And by a series of circumstances I can't go into, these two are present, along with their uncle, who's not a good man, when Aslan creates Narnia. Listen to this, I love this. The lion opened its mouth, his mouth, but no sound came from it. He was breathing out a long, warm breath, and it seemed to sway all the beasts as the wind sways a line of trees. Far overhead from beyond the veil of blue sky which hid him, him, them, the stars sang again a pure, cold, difficult music. And then there came a swift flash like fire, but it burnt nobody, either from the sky or from the lion itself. And every drop of blood tingled in the children's bodies, and the deepest, wildest voice that they had ever heard was saying, Narnia, 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 awake, love, think, speak, be walking trees, be talking beasts, be divine waters. The beasts and the birds, by contrast, cried out a reply in harmonic unity. Hail Aslan, we hear and obey. We are awake, we love, we think, we speak, we know. Creatures, I give you yourselves, says the strong, happy voice of Aslan. I give to you forever this land of Narnia. I give you the woods, the fruits, the rivers. I give you the stars, and I give you myself. Did you catch that last line? I give you yourselves, and I give you myself. All is gift. Your life, your body, your food, your job, your spouse, 
your children, your grandchildren, the sunshine and the rain, the scent of the flowers, the, the vocation he gave you so that you could earn your bread, your possessions, your mind, your heart, your very soul. The riotous beauty and plenty of this world that God placed us in and gave us authority over. All of this is a gift. And why did God give this gift? Simply because it pleased him to. Because it gave him joy to give you these things. Because he is a gift giver at the very bottom of his nature. But with the entry of evil and sin and death into the world, there's now a wrinkle. You see, our appetites and our motives and our actions are now out of whack. They're skewed. They've gone wrong. And now there's a great problem. We instinctively want to take God's good gifts and misuse them or abuse them or hurt others with them. And you see this clearly in your little children, don't you? God gives them teeth to chew their food with and they use their teeth to bite one another. God gives them toys to play with, and they use them as a club to bludgeon the child playing next to them. God gives them nutritious food. He gives broccoli as well as chocolate. And left to himself, the child will gorge on the chocolate and ignore the broccoli. And so what do we have to do as parents? Well, we swat them on the bottom for biting. We intervene and say, since you hit Billy with the fire truck, I'm taking the fire truck away from you for the rest of the day. And we refuse to put the chocolate on the plate until the broccoli is gone. But as parents, we long for the day when the child has become self-controlled enough that we don't have to treat them that way. And when they've grown up enough not to bite and not to clobber one another with a fire truck and not to consume the chocolate and ignore the broccoli. We, we want that day to come. We're training them for that day to come when they can control themselves and do what is right. In other words, when they become people of more mature, better character. When they're more self-regulated rather than parent-regulated. Well, there's a sense in which we never really grow up into that kind of character ourselves. Oh, we learn not to bite and hit one another with a fire truck but we'll smile and make a calculated cutting remark in a sweet tone, or we'll heap verbal abuse on someone. We might totally give up the chocolate and just eat the broccoli because it makes us thin and attractive, and then use that to get ourselves lots of attention, to get envious looks from people of our own sex and covetous, lustful looks and attention from the opposite sex. And we absolutely live for that attention that attention is power, it's social capital. It's power over your spouse who's constantly afraid of losing you to the higher status person paying the most attention to you. It's power in social relationships. It's even power in your career. It's been well documented that pretty people get promoted more and make more. That's why I'm so rich. So we never really outgrow the basic problem. We just get more sophisticated about it. And so God has to intervene from time to time. He has to take things from us or withhold them from us like chocolates 
from a small child. But if there is a good thing in your life that you do not have and you are desperately longing for, or if he has taken something from you and you miss it keenly and you wonder why a good God would permit that, listen to the psalmist. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Remember that God's basic nature is that of a gift giver, and it makes him happy to give you gifts. But he also loves you, and he wills your good, your well-being. And he does not withhold any good thing from those who walk uprightly. Therefore, if you lack some good thing, something that he grants to other people but seems to withhold from you, and you are walking uprightly before him, there can only be one possible conclusion. For some reason, that good gift would not be good for you. It would be a problem. It would create an issue. Maybe your character needs to develop a little bit more. Maybe God is using this situation to form you in a certain way that you wouldn't be formed otherwise. Maybe God knows you better than you know yourself, and he sees that this good thing would play right into your sinful bent and become incredibly destructive in your life and in the lives of others in a way that is just isn't for other people who don't have your particular bent. Or maybe he's withholding it for a reason that none of us have even thought of. I'm going to say to you this morning, oh, Christian, trust your heavenly father. Trust his love. Trust his generosity. Trust his knowledge and his wisdom. Wait patiently for him. Submit to him. Submit to his providences in your life without murmuring and without complaining. He who did not withhold from you his only begotten son will not withhold from you any lesser thing. See, here's the deal. When we come to Jesus, we are united with Christ. Now, when a man marries a rich woman or a woman marries a rich man and there's no prenups involved, the minute that marriage is consummated, she owns everything he has, and he owns everything she has. You and I are espoused to Jesus Christ. We are united with Christ, and he owns it all. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, he says. It's mine. I will do with it what I see fit, and I will give it to you. How much more will he not graciously give you all things. It's all yours. And if he withholds it for a little while, just wait patiently. He has promised to do you good. And he has told you that when you hide yourself in him, you will find him totally sufficient. So trust. 